0: Welcome to Abundant Life Church. It is so great to be with you. Uh, To those in the room with me, I want to say hello. To those watching or listening online or through a podcast, great to have you guys with us as well, wherever you are joining us. Uh, My name is Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here, and and I'm coming in after a great week. And and we had Easter last weekend, and I'm still riding that high a little bit, uh, because we got to see God do so many incredible things. Not only do we have 12 opportunities to gather together, uh, but we got to see baptisms, uh, we got to see lives change, we got to see people uh, experience Jesus for the first time. And, and one of those things, if you've been around here for any amount of time, hopefully you know that as a church, our mission is to give ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. And so we're always looking for opportunities. How do we live this out? What are the natural expressions Of this, Uh, and one of them was a special Easter offering that we invited you to join us in last week. And so, uh, lastly, we took two offerings, if you're with us, uh, one offering just to do the ministry we do every week. Uh, that requires sacrifice and investment from a number of you. Uh, but then to go above and beyond, to go, how do we uh, address at Easter, if Jesus really is alive, let's let's act like it, and let's go, you know, uh, tackle some problems around us. And and we have realized that the foster care uh, problem is one that, that we are uniquely gifted to do something about. And so, we partnered with Embrace Oregon, and, and you heard all about this in the previous. Weeks, If you've been here with us, and and we collected an offering last week, and I know a number of you are going, well, what happened? How how did it go? What's going on with that? I had the opportunity with my wife, Michelle, to go and present uh, that offering to the people who are leading Embrace Oregon this week. We got to surprise them with the number, and we thought, let's just do the big reveal for all of us, so check this out hey guys we are here in front of embrace oregon headquarters to do the big reveal of our easter offering amount we've got a giant check we're going to give them so you're about to find out how much it is and they're about to find out how much it is check this out all right so we are here with the team from embrace oregon and on behalf of underlife church we would just like to say we absolutely support what you guys are doing we raised uh, a lot of money for our easter offering by telling people what you guys are doing. And our church rallied around this, and is so excited about it, and so it is our privilege to present a check to you for $65,000. Oh
1: my gosh, you guys! Wow! So this is from our church wow.
0: to say, way to go, guys.
1: Thank you so much! All you said was there was a surprise today. We had no idea. I'm like, a, my sorry. I just like need a minute. <laughs>
0: So I just asked Brooke to share a little bit about where this money might actually go so you guys can connect the dots to see how your generosity is going to impact lives.
1: We have a really interesting role as a race orient because we act as the bridge between DHS and the community and the church in particular. And so this year, our team had gotten together and had some really big dreams about what the next iteration of our work might be. We found out actually yesterday that there are 82 kids in Multnomah County that don't have and so as we continue to do our work we're knowing that we're the best recruiters of foster families but we have to do even more with the number of kids that are coming into the system and so this is going to directly help us to recruit more families Um, but the second thing is that with 380 families that have come forward through embrace oregon we feel a responsibility to care well for the families that are doing this work and i know many of all of us here really are foster families as well so we know it's not easy work um, and so we've been dreaming about a new volunteer initiative that could wrap around foster families that have come forward and provide tangible support for them in that moment when they step up. And so this is gonna allow us to like launch that in a massive way, which is so fun. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of little things like our website is five years old. and like, so bad, it needs some love and this will help with that too. So we're just grateful because the welcome boxes the launch boxes, the volunteer opportunities are so necessary to help DHS to feel the love of the church and of the body of Christ. So necessary in helping to create a more trauma-informed community that cares for orphans and children in need well. Um, but then the other piece of it is that operationally we have we have goals and needs to take this to the next level, and that's what Abundant
0: Life is providing. So we're super, super grateful. So we have people who are watching this in Vancouver, in Sandy, in Happy Valley.
1: what do you want to say to them thank you thank you so much on behalf of the children that we represent the foster families that we represent thank you for coming forward in radical ways to show the love of christ to the community around
0: us amen i am so proud to be a part of this community with you you guys This is what a generous church looks like. And you guys stepped up and you said, you know what? We believe the church is uniquely qualified to solve this problem, and we're doing it. We are literally being the hands and the feet for vulnerable people in our communities. And here's what's amazing, and she referenced this a little bit, but uh, the state of Oregon has recently come to embrace Oregon, the, the Christian nonprofit that we just joined with, to say to them, will you become our official recruiting arm for new foster families? The state of Oregon is going to a Christian nonprofit that works with Christian churches to solve a problem in our communities. Anyone else excited by this? Man, that's, that doesn't get your adrenaline going. I'd Check your pulse. That is some good stuff. God is alive. God is moving. Thank you for your faithfulness. Man, this is fun to be a part of a church like this with you guys. Here's the deal. If you're like, look, I missed it. I I was going to give and I didn't give and I'm like kicking myself. We're leaving this open through this weekend. You can go online or go to starting point and you can mark it to Embrace Oregon. And we're going to, we told them, hey, if we collect anything else, we'll make sure that gets to you as well. Or maybe you're just like, look, I'm pumped. Let's take this to the next level. If that's you, you can give to that as well. I want to encourage you to take advantage of that if that is you. All right, I could spend the whole message just celebrating what God is doing with that. That's really cool. But let's move on. Uh, we are in week two of our series. If you've got your journals, I wanna encourage you to get those out. Uh, we gave these to you last week. And so if you go to week two, uh, it's the same series journal. I encourage you to write things down that, that you hear or that God is speaking to you or just some maybe ideas you're gonna explore later on this week. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, hopefully you do. Uh, we're gonna be in the, the Old Testament in Psalms chapter 22. And so I'll give you a little bit of time to get there. I've got a physical analog Bible with you. You can get that out. If you've got a Bible app on a phone or a device, it's okay to use that in church as well. encourage you to get that out, and uh, you can read along with us. Well, last week, if you joined us, I asked the question, is Jesus really alive? And it's one of those questions. If, if you're on the fence or you're going, yeah, I don't know, this is a huge question for you. Now, you might go, well, I'm a Christian. I've already answered that question. You know, move on. And here's the reality. Hopefully, you realize you better have a really good answer, even if you say, yeah, I, I believe Jesus is alive. You better know why you think that. And you better realize that. And so hopefully, you, you, you were renewed in that, and you went, yeah, this is, this is some good news to celebrate. Now, today, I want to ask the question, is Jesus really God. Now, again, this is going to hit each of us in different ways. If you're exploring God today, you're exploring Jesus, so glad that you're here. You might be wondering, yeah, I'm not sure that Jesus fits the, the, you know, the category of God. I'm still exploring that. And even if you would say, yeah, I think he is God, well, why do you think that he's God? And, and could you articulate it? Do you fully Understand that. As I was preparing the message this week, uh, I I read something in a book that I happened to be reading that just had one of those unique overlaps where I'm thinking about this and then I'm reading this and I'm going, okay, I I gotta share that. Uh, It's this little excerpt from a book and uh, the excerpt's called The Story of John Frum. I'd never heard this before, but I wanna share this with you and I think it sets the stage for our discussion today. It says, in the Pacific, near Australia, is an area known as Melanesia, which consists of four countries. Vanuatu, the Solomon Islands, Papua New Guinea, and Fiji, as well as some smaller islands. These nations were in the crossroads of the Pacific theater of World War II. As a result of their interaction with the American military, a strange sociological phenomenon occurred that came to be called cargo cults. The indigenous people of these islands would see an American force land, clear some ground uh, for a runway, and build... An observation tower. Then the islanders would gaze with awe as planes would arrive from the sky, land on the runways, and offload enormous amounts of cargo. Often the military would share with the islanders some of the bounty, including canned food and manufactured goods. Thus were born the cargo colts. The local people would clear their own runways and erect their own towers, but from bamboo. Lacking a radio, they might fashion a box that resembled one out of coconuts. They didn't have lights to guide planes in, so they would plant bamboo along the runway. Using wood for guns, they would perform military drills the way they had seen the Americans do it, often in costumes designed to look like US military uniforms. Occasionally, they would even build full size planes out of straw in the hopes they would attract other planes. They did everything the Americans did. But oddly, the planes never landed and the cargo never arrived. Even today, a group in Vanuatu worships John Frum, an idealized American serviceman from World War II. Each February 15th, they hold a parade honoring him and the belief that he will return someday with cargo for everyone. I don't know what your reaction is to hearing that story. Uh, I read that and I thought, you know what, I bet a lot of people look at Christianity like that. Like, oh, look at this elaborate ritual you have created. And and you've got this guy that you worship and, and man, that just looks really strange. And if Jesus isn't really God, uh, we are nothing more than a cargo cult. Like, let's just be real about it. If, if this whole thing is, is not real, then Jesus is no different than John From It's just a man that we think is going to deliver something that ultimately is gonna create a huge amount of disappointment. Are, are we just a cargo coal? We've saw, we, we saw something, we misunderstood what we saw, and we've gone along with it. Or is Jesus really God? Is there really a difference between Jesus and anyone else who would claim to be God. How much does this matter? As one theologian says it, and Greg Boyd, at the root of all that is wrong with humans is a false and ugly mental image of God. See, when you begin to think about God, what you think about, when you imagine God, matters immensely. And, and, and you know, as Greg says it, all that is wrong with us stems from these weird, false beliefs we have about who God is. And so this question today is, is Jesus God, has huge implications for us, no matter how you answer it, because your view of God matters. Now let me ask the question, what is it that we are looking for in a God? Now you maybe have never thought about that, but, but what kind of a God would be the, the kind of a God that would draw you in, that you would look at and go, yes, that is the God for me. Well, what's the criteria that we use when it comes to this? Now, I came across a guy named Jason Silva, who does a number of, of videos and is in a number of shows. And he does this one video where he explains a connection that we have when it comes to us and all of the created gods that we've ever made. And, and he makes a connection in this video that I want to show you, uh, but I want to preface the video with this. I think he makes an intriguing claim. I disagree with his conclusion, okay? So as you're watching, if you're going to go, wait, am I supposed to agree with this? I don't agree with where he takes it. But I think he makes an argument that is true that shapes a lot of our conversation today. Watch this.
2: Us human beings are such ambitious creatures. We dream of cosmic expansion. We dream to soar the heavens, to transcend the biological shackles that limit us. And I think one of the most interesting ways in which we rehearse our own ambitions, you know, is through the use of metaphorical entities, Greek and Roman gods being the best example. This is a way for us to safely idealize ourselves. You know, this is where we can, without censorship, Aspire to be, <laughs> and of course, by labeling them gods, we don't have to admit that it's really us who long for those attributes and qualities of omniscience and omnipotence. Whether it's Bacchus, the Roman god of wine and intoxication, or Morpheus, the god of dreams, right? Or Prometheus, who stole the fire from the gods, right? Or Adam, who bit from the apple, the tree of knowledge. You know, I mean, when you. Look Look at computer companies like Apple. That is the reflection of that Promethean spirit of stealing fire from the gods. All the world's knowledge and information stored in the Google database. The literalization of our dream, our psychedelic Promethean dream of mind expansion. To be as gods, you know, having invented the gods, we can turn into them. <laughs> this is the human yearning. This is what we want. We should just come out of it. Admit it to ourselves already. And go about actualizing this potentiality within us to free the brave, reckless gods within us all.
0: And you thought I talked fast. Just saying. (laughs) So, his point is interesting if you're following his logic that we project onto the gods what we ultimately want. So those things that we wish we could have, instead of saying, I wish I had this, we create an image of God and we give the God that attribute. Think about our fascination with superhero movies. Right? Why why is endgame such the thing right now? Let me give you the ending right now. Just kidding, I'm not gonna spoil it. Right? But why are we so fascinated by it? Because we project onto others the things that we ultimately want. I think he's spot on with that. Now, where I disagree with his conclusion is, yeah, just go all the way and self-actualize and become the God you wanna be. No, no, no. That's bogus. But the premise is incredibly applicable to our conversation. Here's the deal. Our criteria for God is what we secretly want most. Now, we don't say this, which is why when we pursue God, we pursue spirituality, we pursue religion, what are we ultimately pursuing? Something deep inside of us which we want. And so we project what we want and we go, that is my criteria for determining who is really God. And you go, okay, well, what's the big deal with that? Well, this presents a problem. This logic presents a problem when you get to Jesus. Because we talked about last week the resurrection that Jesus couldn't, you know, death couldn't hold him down. We're like, yeah, that sounds like God. But you know what doesn't sound like God? The crucifixion. The resurrection, that part's cool. I like that. But crucifixion? You mean God can be hurt? God can bleed, God can die. Ugh, I don't know about that. I don't know if you're aware, but many world religions looked at Jesus and, and many of them think very highly of him. The reason they often don't attribute God-like status to him is because of the crucifixion. Because most religions look at that and go, God cannot suffer. God cannot be killed by his own creation. It doesn't make any sense. And so we look at a God like that, we go, we wouldn't project that onto God. We would not write up a God that would go to death on a cross. And more importantly, we don't want to experience that. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to sacrifice like that. So we don't want a God that does that either. Now, this creates a problem for us when we study and examine who is Jesus, because this is what we find. In Jesus. So is Jesus God? Can Jesus be God if Jesus goes to the cross? Now one passage in particular I would say is like the pinnacle of of this issue where you go, how could Jesus be God if this is what happened? Mark tells it like this in chapter 15. This is on the cross. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma suboxone, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not only is Jesus humiliated, not only is Jesus suffering, add to that Jesus is alone. He's abandoned. He's neglected. You know, he he has been turned on. Like, we just can't handle this moment it is too much for most of us when we go can jesus really be god if this is what jesus experiences on the cross And this is what we have to wrestle with. Now, a number of people have tried to make sense as to why does Jesus say that? What is going on here? And there's a number of great explanations. I'd like to give you my my, my suggestion of what I think makes the most sense. And you're free to disagree with this. And if you've got something that makes more sense to you, roll with that. But here's what I think is going on. And here's how I would address the question, is Jesus really God? Well, if you're with me in Psalm chapter 22, I want you to look at verse 1. And I want to read this to you. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sound familiar? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? You see, what Jesus is doing here, he's not speaking extemporaneously. He's not just, here's how I feel in the moment. He is quoting from something in the, the scriptures. He's quoting something that they would have been familiar with, which begs the question... Why? Why is Jesus quoting Psalm 22 when he's in his final moments on the cross? Now, to get in that that question, uh, we had to unpack their culture a little bit. Now, their culture is very different than ours, and so let's play a little game together. Um, I'm going to say a music lyric. I'm going to read a line, and I want you to yell out if you know the artist of the song. Okay, fair enough. So loosen yourself up a little bit. This is crowd interaction time. I'm going to read a line. If you know it, I want you to yell it out proud and impress the rest of us with your musical knowledge. This has worked and all the services up to this point. Don't let me down. Okay, here we go. Yesterday, all my troubles seemed so far away. The Beatles. Okay, good. We're one for one, right? So you go, oh yeah, I remember that song. That's the Beatles. Number two but since you've been gone, I can breathe for the first time. Kelly Clarkson, okay? Any Kelly Clarkson fans in the house? Okay, all right. One more, I got this feeling inside my bones. This one's a little harder. Justin Timberlake, I heard a few of you, right? Okay, so I can say a line from these songs, and I want you to notice what it creates in you. Uh, you. You maybe, hopefully, were able to think of at least one of the artists. Maybe you can picture what the artist looks like. You can, you can imagine what their voice sounds like. You can maybe think of the melody of this song just as I read that. Maybe you think about a time that you saw this song performed, uh, maybe live in concert. Maybe you think about uh, the way the song makes you feel as you listen to it. Or or it brings back a memory of one time you heard that song and and what you were doing when you were listening to it. See, all of those things get conjured up, right? Why don't I just make a a sentence? I can elicit all of those things in you. Now, here's what you have to realize. Uh, This is happening, this text we're reading about, is happening in an oral culture, an oral tradition. You would pass things down by saying them or speaking them or singing them. You would actually memorize them. So the the scriptures that they were sent, they would memorize these scriptures. And and that's how things were passed on. We don't live in that culture. We live in a Google culture. Why do you have to memorize anything if you have a cell phone in your pocket? Just Google it. But I can say a song lyric. and, And even though we're a Google culture, I can bring all these things to your mind. Now imagine in a culture that wasn't a Google culture, that would, would not have the Bible, they didn't have that available to them. In fact, the Old Testament, which is all that had been written at this point, uh, these were you know, scrolls that they would go to the synagogue on the weekend. They would listen to someone read it, and they would memorize it. That's the only way you would know what was in it. And so to that culture, what would happen if Jesus were to quote Psalm 22? Now, I'd like to suggest what Jesus is doing is he's inviting everyone who is witnessing the crucifixion, who is watching that moment going, what on earth is happening? He's inviting them to think about Psalm 22 while they witness the crucifixion. That's my claim. Now, you might ask, why would he invite them to to think about Psalm 22? Well, we're going to explore Psalm 22, and we'll answer that question as to why. What does Jesus want them to know, want them to feel, want them to think about as they watch the crucifixion? Because what you're going to realize in Psalm 22 is that there is a shocking amount of overlap between Psalm 22 uh, and what we're going to find happen on the cross with with Jesus himself. And that's what we're going to look at together. Now, if you've got your Bibles out, here's all you need to do is keep your spot in Psalm 22, okay? I'm gonna jump around a bit. You don't need to jump around. You have a hard time keeping up. Just stay in Psalm 22, we'll work our way together. I'll read the rest of the verses to you. But I need to give you a little bit of context in case you're wondering, hey, what, you know, what what am I reading? Psalm 22 comes from the the first section of your Bible. Uh, It's called the Old Testament. Then you have the New Testament. Now, the Old Testament, a better translation would be the Old Covenant. This is God's covenant with the ancient people of Israel, okay? So we can listen in on that, but that covenant is not a covenant for us. We are not a part of ancient Israel. We're listening in on what God did. We are part of the New Covenant, which is the, the, the New Testament, okay? But what you have to realize, you're reading in on what could be considered the Hebrew Bible. This is God's revelation to the ancient Israelites. And at the cross, when everyone's watching, these are Israelites. These are Jews who are experiencing this moment. So Jesus is reaching in to something that they had a a huge familiarity with. And he's connecting that To what they are witnessing. Now, again, why would he do this? Let's explore Psalm 22 to figure out. Why would Jesus quote this psalm and invite them to think through it if they had this psalm in in memory? In Psalm 22, go to verse 7. Verses 7 and 8 say this All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Now, again, this is said, you know, many, many years before the crucifixion. But, but this is an interesting parallel to what they witness happen at the crucifixion. In Matthew 27, uh, verse 41 tells us this. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. They mock him just as it says in Psalm 22. It would be an interesting connection there. Go down to verse 14. It says, I am poured out like water and all of my bones are out of joint." Well, oh, and you know, when that was written in Psalm 22, it's kind of a bizarre verse. Why, why is it talking about bones being out of joint? That is literally what happens in a crucifixion. It dislocates your body. And so in order just to get a breath, you would have to prop yourself up to get a breath. It would be excruciatingly painful. So you would sink back down and your arms would be out of the sockets. The whole thing would, would unnaturally rip your body apart in ways that it's not designed, which was a slow, agonizing Death, which would be very easily described by Psalm 22, verse 14. Go to verse 15. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. This idea of being incredibly thirsty. John 19:28. Later, knowing that everything had been finished, and so that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, "I am thirsty." jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. All found in Psalm 22. Verse 16. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Again, if you understand a crucifixion, it's literally What they do at a crucifixion. They would surround him. He would be hoisted up on a cross. Everyone's around there gawking at the person who's dying. And they would pierce his hands and his feet to get him onto the cross. Verse 18. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Again, strangely specific. Matthew says in chapter 27. When they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Strange amount of overlap there as you read through it. Now it begins, uh, the chapter begins with this sense of, of abandonment of why have you forsaken me? Why am I all alone? But if you keep reading, the tone shifts. It actually communicates a different message. Go to verse 24. It says, For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him but has listened to his cry for help. It's a totally different way of understanding the moment of the cross if Psalm twenty-two twenty-four 24 is what Jesus has invited them to consider, that God has not looked away, God has not scorned the suffering. One of the best images I've ever seen that captures the, the spirit of this is something referred to as the Trinity cross. Now the Trinity cross is basically uh, all of the Trinity represented in the moment, on the cross. And so if you see here, you've got Jesus in the front, and then behind him, you've got God the Father, and he's holding up Jesus' hands from underneath the cross. And then above that, you have the Holy Spirit represented as a dove. So this would be all the Trinity. And I love this image as I read this, imagining. It's not Jesus in isolation, in abandonment. It is Jesus in the fullness of of the Trinity taking all the weight of sin, all of that, and taking every plan and attack that that Satan has to throw at him. And and the weight of the Trinity absorbs all of it in the cross. It's a beautiful way that I I understand this moment. Again, partly by understanding Psalm 22, of understanding the connection between what we're witnessing here. And then you get to the end of Psalm 22, and I think it really puts it in perspective, verses 30 and 31. It says, will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. John says in chapter 19, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now, why would Jesus Want them to think about all these verses, all these connections, while they witnessed what was happening on the cross. How would it change that moment if when you're on the cross and you're watching this and you think everything he said was a lie, everything he claimed was not true, look, he's losing, look, they are winning, all of this is happening to him. But then all of a sudden you get this indication that maybe Jesus is the one actually in control. Maybe Jesus actually knows what's happening and is, is okay with it. And this is all part of a bigger plan. I like to think of this as like the cosmic wink, like Jesus kind of just slightly winking to everyone, like, hey, Psalm 22. And all of a sudden they're like, oh my goodness, he knew. He knew this would happen. He knows what's going to happen. He, you know, this is part of a plan, and all of a sudden, imagine how that would change the experience. When you're concluding this is all a lie, this whole thing is a sham, and then Jesus invites you to remember Psalm 22, and you go, wait a minute. Could this, could this actually be something very different? You see, what appeared to be proof that Jesus isn't God turns out to be the proof that he is God. The fact that we go, the crucifixion is that, oh, I can't get over that. But what if the crucifixion was the thing that convinced us, oh, this God is not like any other God? You see, we have this issue with crucifixion, this issue with God's suffering. But what if that were the thing, that were the most compelling argument for the deity of God? As Brian Zan says it, death swallowed Christ but death cannot digest divinity. I love this image. Oh yeah, death swallowed Christ all right, but death found that it didn't sit well in its stomach, right? It, it was coming back up. Like, I love the image. Yeah, Jesus was killed, but Jesus was God. And so God would not be contained by this death. And yet this completely alters our view of God. Because now we know, if Jesus really is God, this is what God is really like. God is the one who goes to the cross in response to his enemies. God is the one that solves problems by choosing sacrifice. This, this, this all of a sudden frames the person of God in totally new ways for each one of us. As the pastor Brexit Cavey says, The resurrection of the murdered Messiah is only good news because of his character of life-affirming, other-oriented, enemy-loving, sin-forgiving, peace-promoting agape. Otherwise, Easter Sunday would be a revenge story. (laughs) Wouldn't that be a different twist? If like on the cross, instead of Psalm 22, Jesus has one of these moments— you like, you're watching him, you're like, oh, maybe he is God. He's like, I'll be back three days from now. Check yourselves. You know, like, oh, man, he's ticked, and he's coming back, and he's coming back with a vengeance. No, that's not the story. The story is not a revenge story. Why is it not a revenge story? Because this God is not like other gods. This God is not out for power. This God is not out to conquest and and conquer his foes. No, this God sacrifices, takes the weight of the world upon himself. Our criteria for God is what we secretly want most. The challenge for us then is to learn how to want what we find in Jesus. See, for most of us, this, this moment of the cross, this, this idea of, of God who suffers, who sacrifices, who shows his power in this way, it doesn't sit well with us. And so the goal for us to say, if we are going to follow a God like that, how do we learn how to want that? As Andy Stanley says, we would have been most horrified by the moment God was most glorified. We would have sat and watched the cross and said, no, Jesus, not like this. You cannot suffer. Even Peter attempts this. I'll never let them do this to you. And Jesus goes, you don't understand what I'm about. See, the moment that we look at, we go, "Ah, oh, I don't think he can be God, because God wouldn't experience that. It's actually the moment that glorifies him the most. The one true God went to a cross to show us what he's like. To show us the love that he has for us. To show us the power that he really is about. And this is what we refer to as the gospel, the good news. We see it in Jesus. And he invites us to experience it and to live it out for others. That's why our theme verse as a church is 2 Corinthians 8-9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, though he had it all, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you, through his poverty, might become rich. As Jesus gave everything, and there's no greater moment than what we see on the cross, it became good news for us. This is the power of the gospel. And this is what Jesus invites you and I to live out today. And so, if we realize that Jesus is God, the goal for you and I is to spend the rest of our time learning to follow a God like this. We are not building cargo cults. We are not following the gods of this age, the gods of whatever is possible. We're not following the gods of myth from long ago. We're not following gods with superhero-like powers. We're not following gods that, that ultimately display things that we secretly want. We follow the one true God who is unlike any other, who reveals a projection we would never create, And because of that, we can be confident this really is God. So instead of just asking the question, is Jesus God? Let me leave you with this question. Can we learn to want a God like Jesus? I believe that Jesus is God. But I think the issue really is many of us don't want a God like that. We want a God that vanquishes his foes and conquers them and is superhero powers, and then we find Jesus, and we find a God who goes to the cross. Can we learn to want a God like Jesus? Let's pray together. Jesus, as we look upon you, in particular what you have done for us on the cross, may you illuminate the criteria that we are using and even addressing this question, those things that, that we want God to be, because maybe those are things that we want to be, and we can project that onto you. And so if we walk away and conclude that you are not God, it's probably more accurate to say that we don't want a God like you. We, we want a different kind of God. And yet those kinds of gods are figments of our imaginations. The one true God is different than all of that. And so may we learn to want a God like Jesus. May we learn to want to emulate what we find on the cross, that we would choose sacrifice. We would choose surrender because we know that that is the power of the gospel as we live it out for others. And so instead of looking for superhero powers, may we choose to embrace the message of the cross. That we find profound beauty in what we see in Jesus. Not just the resurrection, but in the crucifixion as well. May we find you like that. May we experience you like that. May we show others what you were really like. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said.